2: Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today.
1: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastick. In the past year of the pandemic, Amazon has added more than 500,000 jobs, mostly in its various warehouses. During the same period, more than 20,000 of its frontline workers tested positive for COVID-19, at least according to the company's own records. Their boss, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, saw his net worth rise by $67 billion, Amazon's shadow extends beyond the warehouses, though, to the cardboard factories that supply its packaging, the local stores it's crowded out, and the affordable housing that's flipped to luxury condos near its headquarters. In his new book, Fulfillment, ProPublica reporter Alec McGillis uses Amazon as a frame to chronicle the widening gap between winner-take-all cities and the regions left behind. He joins us from his home in Baltimore. Thanks so much for talking to me, Alec.
2: Well, thanks for having me.
1: So your book is about Amazon, but it's also not about Amazon. In the introduction, you say that you're trying to tell a story through this company, but not a story of Amazon itself exactly. So what do you mean by that?
2: What I mean by that is that I I actually arrived at this book really not through Amazon. I I arrived at it through the problem of, of regional inequality between winner take all regions and cities um, that are just kind of spiraling off into kind of hyper prosperity on the one hand, and then a whole bunch of left behind places, rural areas, but also cities. And I have been worrying about this problem for years and was thinking about how to, how to write about it in a book. And, and then finally decided that using Amazon as a frame was the best way to go about it. Um, and there are two reasons for that. One is that uh, Amazon is simply a very helpful kind of thread to take you around the country because it really is kind of everywhere. It's so ubiquitous in the form of headquarters cities or warehouse towns or data center towns. There are all these different sort of manifestations of the company around the country, so it's just a helpful lens onto the country in that sense because it's kind of taking over, but it's also a useful thread because it really helps to explain the problem of this regional inequality. Regional inequality is linked partly to to economic concentration. Um, you know, put it very bluntly: the more that certain industries and markets become concentrated in certain companies, the more wealth. Gets concentrated in the places that those companies are based, um, and Amazon's a very classic example of that. So it just became a very useful way for me to get at this this problem. The book is not about Amazon per se; it's about about the country that falls within the company's lengthening shadow. It's really about Amazon's America,
1: and it's really also a story about people, right? Like your book is filled with people who have been affected by Amazon, are working for Amazon, have worked for Amazon, or orbiting Amazon in some way. I mean, it is a huge company across the country. So how did you choose who you were going to focus on and like where you were going to focus on?
2: That was a big decision, of course, um, deciding where to go. It's a book about places and people. And so the question of which places to choose was so crucial. Uh, And I, I finally decided to narrow it down so that i could really go deep into places and kind of circle back to places and and really give it somewhat of a novelistic kind of roundedness there are of course so many so many winter cities i could have gone to so many left behind places i could have gone to but i decided to focus on two of each so the two winner take all cities are seattle and washington dc um and and i actually chose washington dc before it was picked as the as the second amazon headquarters so that was serendipitous and, and then the two left behind places were Baltimore and various places in Ohio, mainly Southwest Ohio in the Dayton area, and then rural Southeast Ohio in Appalachian, Ohio. Um, the Baltimore and Washington one was was pretty straightforward. That For me, the book is rooted at its core probably in that Baltimore-Washington divide. I have just felt that divide so keenly because I've been moving back and forth between those two cities for the last 20 years and, and just have just seen that divide grow. And I find it just deeply upsetting. I spent a lot of time in Ohio as a reporter and really knew my way around there and, and actually and had a lot of good contacts in the state. And of course, Ohio it just represents so much of what's, hap- what's happened to the to the Midwest. And then Seattle's also was, was, was fairly automatic, just given that it's been utterly transformed by Amazon. Um, but you're right about the people. My goal was not only to write about these big these big issues in a kind of you know abstract way, but to really show what things are like in all these different worlds in a very visceral way. Um, I'm a reporter. I'm not a political scientist. I'm not a historian. Um, I'm a reporter and a writer. and And I just wanted to give people a real sense of what's kind of going on behind the curtain in in these different realms, both the the kind of left behind realms, you know, the world of the cardboard box maker in Dayton, Ohio, whose life is unraveling and the world of the upper echelons, um, the worlds of Jeff Bezos hobnobbing with David Rubenstein at a gala dinner in Washington and the various hidden agencies that are giving away the tax credits to the companies and, and just really kind of take people in a very granular way into these worlds
1: Yeah, I think when we talk about regional inequality, it can be simplified, I think, to an unhelpful degree, like, oh, it's the coasts versus everybody else. Um, But I think you really paint a much more complicated picture, both within these areas, within, you know, Washington and Baltimore, which are just 40 miles apart, and, you know, Washington compared to Ohio, or even, like, within Washington, where I live, you know, for your purposes, what does that regional inequality look like and how has it accelerated through the growth of companies like Amazon?
2: We've, we've always had, you know, obviously we've always had better off places and less well off places in the country, um, you know, just throughout our entire history. Um, we've always had poor regions um, and wealthy cities. But one of the stats, you know, that I find most striking is that, In uh, 1980, only a small sliver of parts of the country were either more than 20% wealthy than the median or less than 20% wealthy. Um, It was basically just the Deep South fell below that 20% mark and then Washington and a few other cities, New York area fell above it. Now whole swaths of the country are on that list. Um, Another way of looking at it is through cities. Um, In the mid 60s, the 25 wealthiest cities in the country included all these Midwestern cities. It's just remarkable to look at this list. Um, Milwaukee, Des Moines, Cleveland, Rockford, Illinois was in the top 25 wealthiest cities in the country by by, by income in the mid 60s. Um, fast forward to today and only one or two cities, non-coastal cities are on that list. Um, Minneapolis and perhaps Chicago, every other city is on the coast. Um, so so that's what it looks like at the, at the national level, but then you do have, if you kind of drill down, you do have also this extraordinary inequality within cities and it's worst in the cities, in, in the winner-take-all cities. Essentially, as so much wealth gets concentrated in this handful of, of rich get richer, winner-take-all cities, the inequality within the cities gets even worse because the wealth is, of course, concentrated only in certain parts of the city, um, and and you end up with just this really kind of dystopian levels of inequality that you see now, you know, especially you know in, in, the, in the Bay Area, but but also plenty of other cities as well, and you end up with just the incredible levels of displacement. That you've seen, especially Washington, really kind of is the the ultimate example of the displacement um, that's happened there. With, by one estimate, by one very solid estimate, twenty thousand black residents having been displaced over the course of roughly a decade. Um, and and so the the regional inequality um, then plays into kind of a, a intra-city inequality in those in those winter cities. And it's basically the whole thing. This imbalance is bad for everyone. It's bad for the left-behind cities that are just struggling with with blight and abandonment, and then it's also it's also no good for the winner-take-all cities because they deal with these these horrendous um, affordability crises and horrendous traffic congestion. And it's all too much of a good thing. And and, I, and it kind of, kind of confounds me that that when we talk about the housing affordability crisis in the winter cities that we don't think more about the national context. Um, There's this whole debate about, well, do do we deal with this problem by building more housing supply or using rent control? That's the big debate in these cities. But what's missing in that is that there would not be as much of a housing crisis in these cities to begin with if you didn't have so much of the growth and prosperity in the country concentrated in just a few places. I mean, it's, it's insane that you have that to take again the Baltimore Washington example, that you have this huge housing crisis in Washington, DC. Um, and with you know townhouses, uh, row houses going for six, seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars or more, and then just up the road 40 miles away we're demolishing row houses by the hundreds and thousands 40 miles away um, that makes no sense and and it's because of this complete imbalance that we've allowed to develop
1: so how do tech companies specifically how has the amazon contributed to that inequality
2: it's very straightforward i mean with amazon it's been so it's been so incredibly kind of explicit how it's happened um, Generally speaking, the tech industry has fueled this problem because there's something about the tech industry that does, and this has been, you know, noted for a while now by urban theorists and economists and whatnot. That that the tech industry encourages agglomeration. It encourages a winner-take-all effect because the way that innovation happens, you know, at least in the in the pre-coronavirus pre-Zoom era, definitely involved proximity. You have to be around each other and this you know goes back to the centuries of history about how cities work and innovation happens you know brilliant people together sharing their brilliant ideas and things come out of that and that's how the tech industry has flourished and that's why you see something like Silicon Valley develop because proximity does help. So you have this agglomeration in in certain places. You have Amazon deciding back in the 90s to set up shop in Seattle, not just because there were tax advantages of going there, but because Microsoft was already there. And so you had tech talent that you could bank on and drawing on for your own company because you need that workforce. And then the ultimate example of that was now in these last couple of years where Amazon sets out on this big nationwide sweepstakes reality show process to find a second headquarters 238 cities desperately you know put in their bids and lo and behold Amazon picks the two you know biggest wealthiest most obvious cities on the east coast for this it's New York plans kind of blow up and then it settles just for Arlington across the river from Washington and so you have this city that is already basically the wealthiest metro area in the country, six of the 10 wealthiest counties are in greater Washington, and it is now going to get these these extra 25,000 high-paying jobs, all the investment of, of building this new basically corporate city on the Potomac and in the city that needed it least. And it's just it's just the ultimate example of that kind of winner-take-all dynamic.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the irony of all this with tech in particular is that it seems obvious when you explain it that way, but tech gets talked up as this rootless thing that you can just do from anywhere. And, you know, geography doesn't matter. You can just like work from home. But I mean, it seems really concrete and really geographic. So, I mean, how do you think that this perception of tech as like rootless and liberating confounds the story? What do you think the effect of these sort of like warring ideas of tech is? Does it prevent us from seeing it clearly?
2: And you're right that the promise all along was that, you know, the internet was going to let us go wherever we wanted. And in fact, I think what that missed was that there was something much more kind of archaic about the way that we work as humans, the way that innovation happens, the way that, and also let's face it, the kind of the political aspect of of how tech innovation and growth and investment happens. It's simply, it's not just about who has the best idea. It's also about whether you're in a city's chock full of venture capitalists looking for the next thing to invest in. These things happen over cocktails. They happen over evening industry events. They happen in elevators. We we are social creatures and connections matter. What's gonna be really interesting to see now going into the post pandemic moment is is whether there's finally going to be some kind of a dispersal. Now that there's been somewhat of a broader acceptance of the Zoom world. I, and there's been a lot said about this in you know, the last couple of months, I'm skeptical. Um, I, I would love to see, you know, dispersal happen. I would love to see my struggling hometown of Pittsfield, Mass, um, suddenly getting a surge of, of new residents um, who have decided that it's okay to live two and a half hours from Boston, three and a half hours from New York. Same thing in Baltimore, to have more people decide that they can just live in Baltimore instead of DC but i'm skeptical i mean it seems like so much of the movement that's being described right now that's happening is is from a very expensive winter city to a somewhat less expensive winter city so it's the it's the san francisco to austin move or it's the move to to kind of resort type places it's mountain towns in the rockies or boise idaho the move maybe up the Hudson River to some of the nice river towns, Um, a lot of moves just into the suburbs. Um, It's not as if people are moving to Akron and Erie and Rochester and Buffalo and Syracuse.
1: Well, what about the idea that, well, you know, all these industries that are dying, you know, all these production plants that have closed up shop in the States and moved overseas, well, all of those workers, all of those coal miners, all those steel workers, they'll just learn how to code and they'll work for tech. Um, have we seen that happen or have we seen those people, you know, just work for tech, but work for tech in a warehouse?
2: It's much more the latter. I mean, there, there's just, I mean, you look at the scale of scale of it, that's where people are, are going. Um, and in fact, in my book, it was, it was just astonishing that I actually stumbled across a man who made exactly that move from from the steel plant to the warehouse. His name is Bill Bodani, Jr. And he spent more than three decades working at at Bethlehem Steel in Baltimore, which was in the late 50s, the biggest steel plant in the world. At this place called Sparrows Point, a peninsula that juts out into the water outside Baltimore. And he put in his three decades there. It was very grueling work, very dangerous work. He had a lot of serious accidents. But he just he loved the work. He loved the, the kinship and the sense of purpose and the camaraderie that came with it and was making really good money by the end. More than $35 an hour, really good benefits. Um, he finally left after his last accident. Um, some years later, needed money, went back to work at the exact same peninsula. The steel plant has been wiped completely clear. This huge steel plant just gone, along with a company town that was right sort of within the plant, about 5,000 people gone. And now it's been replaced by logistics warehouses, um, including two, not one, but two Amazon warehouses. And he went to work at one of them as a forklift driver, making $15 an hour at the end instead of the $35 an hour he was making at Steel. And the work was not only less well paid, but much more isolating, much less purposeful, no sense of camaraderie. Um, he lasted only a few years. He kept getting hassled for taking more time than he should have in the bathroom. He's an older guy, he needed to go to the bathroom a lot. Got in trouble also for kind of quietly coaxing some of the younger guys to think about a union. Um, and then he finally just quit in a huff. Um, that's the transformation that's happening. That chapter is really in a way kind of like the emotional core of the book. Um, it's that transformation from this much more purposeful, meaningful kind of work to the warehouse work. And the numbers are just mind boggling that in the last year, just in the last year, Amazon has added more than 500,000 workers in the warehouses. I mean, that just, that kind of expansion in such a short time was already huge. That's where people are going. That is now... The work that is available to you just about anywhere,
1: right? And not a single one of those five hundred thousand jobs is a union job, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean that's a lot of jobs to add, and it 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 feels pretty prophetic for your book to come out right in the middle of the very first union vote at an Amazon fulfillment center in Bessemer, Alabama. You know, at the end of the month on March thirtieth, the NLRB is going to be counting votes. How do you think that the workplace fight plays into this? Um, how do you think the unions? Huge, yeah. it's
2: huge. I mean, it's if you're writing about anything that's relatively contemporary, you're going to wish you had one more, you know, month for the book. And and the book's coming out now in the midst of this union fight, which as is, is as you said, very serendipitous. Um, I I do wish that I'd been able to include the union fight in the book because it's so it's such a big deal. I mean, the if you think about it, sort of like big kind of cosmic historical terms, the workers at Beth Steele um, way back in the early 20th century were, were not unionized and were treated horribly, were paid very little, um, had no power. And then through the 20s, 30s, 40s, got themselves unionized and and just got these really good middle-class salaries and benefits and, and stability and self-direction and, and rights. And then it all it all fell apart. And so it's like this kind of arc of history. And now we're back literally at the same place as that steel plant existed. You're back to a warehouse with workers who are not unionized, who are not paid enough, with crazy productivity quotas and and algorithms ruling their grueling schedules. And and so what it will take is for the cycle to move again and for those those workers to get the kind of representation and power. That the workers at the steel did, and and the fact that it's now happening—that the first big fight is happening in a town called Bessemer. This is a town that was actually named for the guy who invented the steelmaking process. The Birmingham area was one of our biggest steelmaking hubs in the country. Um, to me, that the historical echo there is is really pretty remarkable. The the other level where we you know where this fight is going to have to happen is the consumer level. Um, I'm a Big believers that all of us have individual agency. That yes, there are these systemic, structural forces at work in the economy and in the world, but but that we eat that each of us also have agency—political agency, consumer agency—and and I get bothered when I hear people say, "Well, what do you expect me to do? it's cheaper, it's convenient." You know, for one thing, what that misses is the fact that the more that we make that kind of quote convenient decision, the more the more inevitable it'll become in the future because the more you you choose the Amazon sort of option over the more local option, you're going to lose that local option eventually. And then the only option you'll be left with is Amazon. So then it definitely is more convenient because then you have to drive like to the next town over to get what you need because the place that was in your own town is gone. And I've been really bothered to see this problem of the kind of automatic reach for the one-click, the online option grow exponentially this past year when it was a decision you could make no longer with some kind of um, qualms of conscience or, or guilt, but a decision you could make with a full righteousness because in, in making that that one-click move, having everything just delivered to your home, you were you know flattening the curve. You were doing what the public health folks told you to do. And so there was, was no longer even any more compunction about it. And I, I do worry that those habits were going to linger. And you know as consumers, we've, we've never been sufficiently aware of, of all the steps in the process of how something kind of got to the shelf of the store. But, but at least we were in the store. At least there was some, some human interaction there, something kind of physical and material. Now we've even lost that stuff in the process. And, and it really is simply the click, the box that arrives two days later or one day later or same day. And we've lost the entire chain in between. And this book is really an attempt to show you what happened on that chain.
1: We have links in the show notes to Alec McGillis's book, Fulfillment Winning and Losing in One Click America, as well as his related piece in the New York Times, Amazon and the Breaking of Baltimore. If you'd like to learn what it's like to work at an Amazon fulfillment center somewhere else in the world, the German novelist Heike Geisler wrote about the brutal experience of it in her book Seasonal Associate. And you can also learn more about the high stakes fight for a union at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. Those ballots are due for the first ever warehouse-wide union vote by the end of this month. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care. And stay sharp.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampy. Mm. Hello Fresh.